Welcome to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Each week we examine the latest appeals decided by the Connecticut Supreme Court and the Connecticut Appellate Court. We focus on three areas of law, criminal law, personal injury law, and family law, each sponsored by a firm that concentrates in that type of law. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and get the newest episode each week and stay up to date on the latest case law. You can also visit our website, ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com, and register to get an alert every time a new episode is released. And now, let's get into the latest decisions after a quick word from our first sponsor. Next up, criminal law cases. If you know someone who needs the advice of a criminal defense or civil rights attorney, the lawyers at Ruan Attorneys should be the first firm you turn to. Our lawyers handle criminal cases in every courthouse in the state, from juvenile cases through arguing and winning in the Connecticut Supreme Court, and they welcome your referrals. Our trial team is led by attorney Jim Ruane, one of the few board-certified criminal trial specialists in the state. And Ruane Attorneys has the experience and relationships to handle any type of criminal case you throw at them. Our civil rights team is led by attorney Dan Lage, twice selected as an award-winning lawyer by the Connecticut Law Tribune. What's more, Ruane Attorneys is always available to consult with fellow attorneys on criminal law issues at any time. Put the power of over 500 five-star reviews to work for your criminal case referrals by trusting Ruane Attorneys with your referral. Visit RuaneAttorneys.com for more information or email our team at referral at RuaneAttorneys.com. Hello again from the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. It's Dan Lage back with you again where we read the cases so you don't have to. It's the week of March 9th, 2021. We've got three cases on the docket this week. One case is a review of what constitutes a knowing, voluntary, and intelligent statement under the rule of Miranda. Our second case discusses the sufficiency of the evidence when charged with burglary under a certain set of facts. And finally, we visit the Supreme Court for a very comprehensive review on the waiver of the right to counsel, the invocation of self-representation, and what it all means vis-a-vis structural Error. But first, we begin with some housekeeping. Two things. The first thing is I'd like to give a shout out to a young woman by the name of Olivia Bender. Every single week, myself, attorney Rich Rockland, and attorney Ryan McKean um, publish these cases on the podcast so that our listeners don't have to bother with you know, logging into Westlaw or dusting off the, the law reporter to read the written word. And, and a lot of that is because of the work that Olivia does reviewing the cases that we've identified as cases that we think our listeners will be interested in. She helps us with briefing the cases so that we can talk about them here on the podcast. And uh, Olivia does a great job. So she's a second year law student out of Boston College School of Law, probably on to a very long and successful career. The second thing is that we have a case called uh, Velez versus the Commissioner of Correction. Not going to get into the specifics of that case. It goes over well-covered ground here on the podcast. The uh, rules surrounding successive petitions under Connecticut General Statute 52-470. So we've been through that on the podcast, I think, two or three times in the last few weeks. So we're going to skip Velez this week, and we're going to get on to our first case. It is State versus Hall George. Your citation is ac 425 7-4, Judge Suarez is on this opinion, officially released on March 9th, 2021. Here are your facts. At approximately 4.10 p.m. on April 28, 2017, the defendant entered a Farmington bank in New Britain. 
He was dressed in dark, baggy clothing with a hood pulled over his head. At the time, he was approximately five foot seven inches tall with a skinny build. The defendant's movement, tracked via the bank's surveillance system, represented that he remained in the bank lobby for about an hour. He sat in a guest chair with a magazine in his lap and began writing after obtaining a pen and paper from a workstation, and occasionally it appeared as if he was holding something to his ear, which appeared to be a cell phone. Shortly after 5 p.m., he approached a teller station where the bank supervisor was working. The teller counter rose slightly higher than the defendant's waist. The dividers around the station were about the same height as his shoulders. He had his head positioned so that it was hovering over the glass, separating the defendant from the supervisor while they interacted. At this time, the defendant handed the supervisor a withdrawal note and mumbled, Give me all the money and no one will get hurt. The note reiterated this message and stated, It's in my sweatshirt. Make it quick. The note also contained a request for the specific bills he wanted. The supervisor gave the defendant $613. He then left the bank shortly after 5.05 p.m., he being the defendant. The police were called and arrived approximately three minutes later. A state forensic laboratory analyzed the defendant's note and found both latent fingerprints and DNA on it. The analysis supported a finding that one fingerprint matched the defendant's right index finger and that two other fingerprints matched his right middle finger. The DNA found on the note was determined to be consistent with that of the defendant. Based upon this information, the police attempted to locate the defendant at an address in Willimantic. Upon arrival, the police were encountered by a woman who was dating the defendant at the time and who lived at his address. This woman provided the officers with two cell phone numbers that she used to communicate with the defendant. The officers used the cell phone numbers to obtain phone records for those numbers after executing search warrants. The numbers showed that at 4.40 p.m. and 5.06 p.m. on the date of the robbery, the defendant's phone accessed a cellular antenna that was mounted near and pointed directly toward where the bank was located. The defendant was arrested on October 19, 2017, and on August 22, 2018, by way of a two-count long-form information, the state charged him with robbery in the second degree under Connecticut General Statute 53A135A1B and one count of robbery in the second degree 53A135A2B. The case was tried by a jury on September 27, 2018, for four days. Immediately after the state rested its case, the defendant moved for acquittal. The court denied the motion, and the defense rested without presenting evidence. The court held a charging conference on the record, followed by closing arguments. The court then delivered the charge. The jurors deliberated, returning a verdict of guilty that day on both counts. A judgment of acquittal was filed again after the verdict, pursuant to Practice Book 42-51, asserting that the jury did not hear sufficient evidence to find beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant was guilty of committing these crimes. On October 4th, he amended his motion, which contained the same arguments. Both motions were denied on December 3rd. He was thereafter sentenced to seven years on each count, but the trial court noted that one of the counts had to be dismissed because he cannot be guilty of two counts of one single act, 
thus dismissing the second count. Nonetheless, the defendant appealed. Here we are. His first claim, the insufficiency of the evidence. The defendant claims that the evidence presented was insufficient to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he threatened the use of what he represented by his words and conduct to be a deadly weapon or dangerous instrument as required by the statute. Our standard of review. The applicable review for sufficiency of the evidence claim is a two-part test. First, the court will construe the evidence in the light most favorable to sustaining a verdict. Second, the court will determine whether upon the facts so construed and the inferences reasonably drawn therefrom, the jury reasonably could have concluded that the evidence established guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The appellate court cannot substitute its judgment for the jury if there is sufficient evidence to support the verdict. A jury is tasked with finding every element proven beyond a reasonable doubt. However, each of the basic and inferred facts underlying those conclusions need not be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. The jury can consider a combination of proven facts to determine whether the cumulative effect of the evidence proves the defendant guilty of all the elements of the crime. Moreover, the probative force of circumstantial evidence, rather than direct, shall not be diminished, and when drawing inferences, the jury is not required to accept as dispositive those inferences that are consistent with innocence. The jury may draw whatever inferences from the evidence or facts established it deems to be reasonable and logical. Finally, on appeal, the court will not ask whether there is a reasonable view of the evidence that would support a reasonable hypothesis of innocence. Rather, whether there is a reasonable view of the evidence that supports the jury's guilty verdict, citing State versus Hazard, a case we've done on the podcast, 201 Connecticut Appellate 46. In other words, this is going to be hard. So let's get into the analysis. The essential elements of robbery in the second degree are, one, the person commits a robbery as defined in Statute 53A-133. Two, during the commission of the crime or in flight therefrom, such person displays or threatens to use what such person represents by their words or conduct to be a deadly weapon or dangerous instrument. As to count one, the state alleged that during the course of the defendant's commission of the robbery, he threatened the use of what he represented to be a deadly weapon or instrument by passing a note indicating that he had a deadly weapon or instrument in his waistband to the bank supervisor. The supervisor testified that the defendant told her to give him all the money and no one would get hurt. The note which the defendant gave the supervisor was also in evidence which reiterated his demand and threat with the added context of, it's in my sweatshirt. Additionally, video and photographs of the defendant in the bank wearing the sweatshirt were in evidence. The supervisor also testified that he was skinny, that his clothes were baggy, and that he hovered over the glass that separated them. The video footage reinforced this testimony. Now, the defendant focuses on the language of the note and argues that it's not sufficient in finding that he threatened to use what he represented as a deadly weapon or dangerous instrument. He contends that the mere claim to possess an unspecified weapon is insufficient to establish that essential element. And lastly, he asserts that the jury impermissibly permissibly resorted to speculation by inferring that the, the statement, it's in my sweatshirt, means deadly weapon or dangerous instrument. 
However, the state points to the following evidence as sufficient. He was wearing a closed front sweatshirt. He was separated from the bank supervisor by a counter structure and clear partition that rose to his chest and shoulder height. Of course, his statement and the note. In support of its argument, the state cites State versus Hawthorne, 175 Connecticut 569, which dealt with the defendant convicted of robbery in the first degree, and the court finds that the language between the two statutes is almost identical, with the only difference being the display or threatened use of deadly weapons versus the display or threatened use of firearms. There, in that case, the Supreme Court found that an essential element of this crime was the defendant's representation of having a firearm, such that the defendant need not even have a firearm. He need only represent by his words or conduct that that is the case. Applying that logic here, the defendant only needed to represent by his words or conduct that he was armed. The state additionally points to prior cases in which the court held that similar evidence was sufficient to prove first-degree robbery, like in State versus Bell, 93 Connecticut Appellate 650, the defendant told the victim that she, quote, wouldn't get hurt, unquote, while holding something under his jacket that the victim testified looked like a gun. In another case, State versus St. Pierre, 58 Connecticut Appellate 284, the defendant announced, quote, this is a holdup, unquote, while raising his arm, which remained hidden in his jacket. A case called State versus Arena, 33 Connecticut Appellate 468, the defendant tells the victim, quote, hurry up and nothing will happen, unquote, while pointing an object in an opaque plastic shopping bag, which the victim believed was a gun. In each of those cases, the defendant's conduct and words were sufficient for the juries to reasonably infer that the defendants wanted the victims to think they had firearms. When weighing the sufficiency of the evidence in Bell and Arena, this court noted that the defendant's statements contained implicit threats of harm. Here, the evidence demonstrated that the defendant orally and in writing threatened to harm bank staff if his demands were not met. Based upon the statements made by the defendant and the note, the jury reasonably could have inferred that the object concealed under his sweatshirt could be used to carry out those threats. Moreover, based upon the testimony of the bank supervisor and the video footage, the defendant's baggy clothing could have supported an inference that he was capable of concealing such a weapon or instrument. And lastly, it was also reasonable for the jury to find that the height of the counter and the defendant's posture could have allowed him to conceal whatever was in his sweatshirt. So in construing the evidence in the light most favorable to sustaining the verdict, This court finds that the jury reasonably could have found beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant represented he had a deadly weapon or a dangerous instrument and that he threatened to use it on the bank supervisor if the bank supervisor did not give him the money he requested. In conclusion, insufficiency of the evidence remains really, really tough. He loses and Judge Suarez finds that there was enough evidence or at least sufficient evidence to support the jury's finding of guilt on this charge, and we are on to our next case. And if you're not comfortable with Miranda as it's applied here in Connecticut, then you're in luck because this next case talks all about it. State versus Rousseau, 
AC43084, Judge D. Pentima, on this decision, officially released March 9th, 2021, the anniversary of Notorious B.I.G.'s passing. Here are your facts. On July 18th, 2017, Rosella Schuler and Shavaka Caesar were standing on a street in Hartford. While operating a stolen vehicle, the defendant struck Caesar and Schuler. The vehicle then comes to arrest after crashing into a fence where five people, including the defendant, flee the scene. Schuler and Caesar were transported to a nearby medical center where later Schuler succumbed sadly to complications from her injuries. On July 19th, the next day, the defendant was brought into the Hartford Police Department for questioning about the accident and an unrelated fatal shooting. He eventually admitted that he was the driver of the vehicle which struck Schuler and Caesar and signed a written, written statement to that effect. The interrogation ended at approximately 1 a.m. on July 20th. The defendant was charged by way of substitute long-form information with one count of larceny in the second degree, one count of manslaughter in the second degree, and one count of invading responsibility. He pled not guilty and elected a jury trial. On January 24th, 2019, he moved to suppress the statements he made to the police on July 19th and 20th uh, during the interview about the accident. Trial court held a hearing on the motion on February 4th. The lead investigator of the shooting incident testified regarding the events of the interview. State introduced a recording of the interrogation, a signed Miranda waiver, and parental consent forms. The court denied the motion to suppress on February 13th. The trial began the next day. The jury was read the defendant's written statement where he confessed to being the driver of the vehicle that struck the women. On February 20th, he was found guilty of manslaughter in the second degree and evading responsibility. On April 24th, he was sentenced to a total effective sentence of 16 years incarceration. This appeal followed. And so first, the defendant contends that the trial court erred in denying his motion to suppress the statements that he made to the police. Specifically, he argues that his statements were obtained in violation of Miranda, contending that the interrogation regarding the accident was a new and separate interview from the one regarding an unrelated shooting, such that the police were required to give him a new Miranda advisement before questioning him on the accident. In response, the state argues that the police were not required to administer a new set of Miranda rights after obtaining the defendant's statements about the shooting and prior to their questioning on the accident. Furthermore, the state argues that even if the court erred in admitting the defendant's statements, the admission was harmless. There are some additional facts. On July 19, 2017, the defendant and his father were brought to the police department and placed in an interview room. At approximately 3 p.m., the defendant was advised of his Miranda rights. His father was present during this time and subsequently signed the parental consent form. Two detectives interviewed the defendant and informed him that he would be under arrest for murder. The defendant was first questioned about the shooting until 4.28 p.m. At that time, he requested the presence of a lawyer. The questioning then ceased. At 5.05, a detective informed the defendant that he was being held for processing and booked for murder. At this time, the defendant became upset and he expressed a desire to continue speaking with detectives. After processing, the defendant was brought back into the interview room. 
He informed the detective that he was willing to speak without a lawyer. He was read his Miranda rights again, and his father reviewed and signed another set of rights waiver forms. Following this, the bulk of the investigators' questioning centered around the shooting. The defendant eventually provided a written statement regarding the shooting, which he completed at 11.20 p.m. 17 minutes later, at 11.37, two detectives entered the interview room and informed the defendant that they would be speaking with him about something else. They questioned him about his whereabouts the previous day, and the defendant responded that he had seen the car accident. At this time, the defendants informed him that the car accident is the matter that they wanted him to talk about. The defendant was not re-advised of any rights prior to the questioning regarding the accident. The defendant later provided a written and signed statement concerning his involvement in the accident and admitted to being the driver of the vehicle. The interrogation related to the incident concluded at 1 a.m. In the court's oral ruling on the motion to suppress, it noted that the basis for the ruling was derived largely from the video of the interrogation. It was concluded that the defendant knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily waived his Miranda rights. The court further found that the detectives were not required to re-advise the defendant before beginning their questioning on the accident because of the defendant's awareness of all possible topics of questioning in advance of the interrogation is not relevant to whether his rights were waived. So let's get into our standard of review here. This court, the appellate court, will not disturb a ruling on a motion to suppress unless the trial court's finding is erroneous given the evidence and pleadings in the whole record. When legal conclusions, however, are challenged, the court's review is plenary and it must determine whether they are logically and legally correct and whether they find support in the facts set out in the memorandum of decision. The court cites State versus Clark, 191 Connecticut Appellate, 191. Now, the court says that it has previously concluded that without proper safeguards, the process of in-custody interrogation contains inherently compelling pressures, which work to undermine an individual's will to resist and to compel him to speak where he would not otherwise do so. The court cites for that principle State versus Spence, 165 Connecticut Appellate, 110. Therefore, it is well established that the prosecution may not use statements stemming from custodial interrogation of the defendant unless it demonstrates the use of procedural safeguards effective to secure the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination, citing State v. Sumler, 199 Connecticut Appellate, 187. Here, the defendant was read his Miranda rights and he signed a rights waiver form twice. Moreover, during oral argument before the appellate court, the defense counsel stated that he was not challenging the legality of the Miranda warnings or the legality of the shooting portion of the interrogation. What he does claim is that his rights were violated because the motor vehicle portion of the interview was separate. Therefore, the police were required to administer a new set of warnings, and they failed to do so, which resulted in a violation of constitutional rights. However, the appellate court finds that the interview concerning the accident wasn't separate at all. The United States Supreme Court has held that two periods of questioning with only a short period of time between sessions may be viewed as one continuous interview. That's Missouri versus Siebert, 542 U.S. 
600. Siebert, of course, stands for the principle that a break in the questioning of about 15 to 20 minutes can be regarded as a continuum. Here, the defendant completed his statement regarding the shooting at 11.20, and approximately 15 minutes later, the police resumed questioning regarding the accident. This short time lapse, so says the court, was within the time that the United States Supreme Court has considered a continuous as a continuous interview. Additionally, at the outset of the interview, the detectives informed the defendant that they had a lot to talk about and that the shooting was only one of the subjects. Thus, the defendant was on notice that several topics may come up during the conversation. Moreover, while alone with his father, the defendant mentioned multiple times that he may have been brought up because of a motor vehicle incident, which demonstrates that he was truly on notice regarding the topic. Accordingly, the appellate court finds that the questioning of the accident comprised one continuous interview with the questioning regarding the shooting. The court then turns to whether the police were required to administer a new set of Miranda warnings before the questioning regarding the accident because it was a separate offense. This court in State v. Herman, that's 38 Connecticut Appellate 66, in that case the defendant argued that his waiver of rights was not knowing or voluntary because he had not been informed that he would be questioned about a sexual assault when being questioned about an argument he had with the victim's mother. The court rejected his claim, concluding that there is no requirement that the police inform an arrested person of the specific charges against him after they give the arrestee Miranda warnings. Accordingly, pursuant to this court's precedent, the police were not required to re-administer Miranda warnings. As articulated in the Spring case and Herman case, a Miranda warning is broad and explicit in that it advises a suspect that anything he says may be used against him. Therefore, the police are not required to inform a suspect about all possible subjects of questioning or of all possible charges, such that the police do not need to re-advise a suspect of his or her rights prior to asking questions on different topics during a single interrogation. Here, the defendant received his Miranda warnings two times, and while relevant case law does not require that the defendant be aware of all possible subjects, he was nonetheless aware in this situation of his involvement with the accident as a possible subject for questioning. It's exemplified by the detective's statements that they had a few topics to discuss. The defendant's own statements to his dad regarding his possible involvement in a car accident, as well as his statement that he had witnessed a car accident the day before. Thus, the court finds that it was readily apparent to the defendant that the accident was a possible subject, such that the police were not required to re-advise him of his rights. The defendant attempted to circumvent the holding of Herman by citing other authority which the court finds as distinguishable. He first asserts that the holding in Miranda stands for the proposition that he should have been re-advised of his rights. However, the court finds that the concerns present in Miranda versus Arizona regarding defendant Westover's interrogation are not present here. There, the United States Supreme Court concluded that the questioning from the FBI and the local police constituted a continuous interrogation. However, it found that the FBI's reading of his rights at the beginning of their interview came at the end of the local police's interview. 
Accordingly, the FBI was the beneficiary of the pressure applied by the local police, and in those circumstances, the giving of warnings alone was not sufficient to protect the privilege. Contrastingly, here, the defendant was advised of his rights at the outset of one continuous interview rather than towards the end of an interview. Therefore, unlike in Miranda, he was capable of making a voluntary and intelligent waiver of his rights that were not the result of any pressure applied by the police. The defendant also claimed that Michigan versus Mosley, 423 U.S. 96, supports his claim that he needed to receive, receive additional Miranda warnings. In Mosley, the defendant was arrested in connection with multiple robberies. He was advised of his Miranda rights, and early into the interview, he indicated that he did not want to answer any questions about robberies. More than two hours later, a different officer from a different bureau of the police department brought the defendant into another interview location to question him about a homicide. He was again advised of his rights, and during that interview, the defendant made a statement implicating himself in the homicide for which he was ultimately convicted. The United States Supreme Court upheld the admissibility of the defendant's statement regarding the homicide because his right to end questioning about robberies was scrupulously honored, and he was given another set of Miranda warnings. Mosley is distinguishable and inapplicable in this case because the defendant underwent one continuous interview during which he received and waived his rights twice. The court therefore concluded the defendant was not entitled to receive additional warnings, and the trial court did not err in denying his motion. And Mr. Rousseau's conviction is upheld. We now move on to our third and final case this week. It's out of the Supreme Court. State versus Joseph A. SC20125. Justice Mullins on this decision officially released July 15, 2020, but published on March 9, 2021. Here are your facts. The defendant and the victim are brothers, and the victim has cerebral palsy. The brothers shared a home with their mom, and on August 3rd, 2011, at approximately 11.40 a.m., the defendant accused the victim's friend of putting a hole in the windshield of the defendant's vehicle. The defendant punched and slapped the victim in the face and the head and dragged him around the apartment. The defendant threw the victim's phone across the room when the victim attempted to grab it, and in the meantime, called the Wallingford Police Department to report the vandalism to his car. The victim then called the police to report the assault after locating his phone. The defendant was charged with assault of a disabled person in the third degree, disorderly conduct, and interfering with an emergency call. At a jury trial, the defendant represented himself. He was found guilty of both the assault of a disabled person and the disorderly conduct, but not guilty of interfering with the emergency call. He was sentenced to one year imprisonment. He thereafter appealed, claiming that the trial court violated his right to counsel under Amendments 6 and 14 of the United States Constitution when it permitted him to represent himself without obtaining a valid waiver of his right to counsel. Pointing specifically to the trial court's canvas, during the trial as inadequate and thus an abuse of discretion in determining that the defendant knowingly 
intelligently and voluntarily waived his right to counsel. The appellate court found that the canvas was sufficient and that the defendant waived his right to make this claim at the pretrial stages of arraignment and plea negotiation because he did not allege in his opening that he clearly and unequivocally invoked his right to counsel prior to that canvas. We are now at the Supreme Court. The defendant claims that the appellate court's conclusion that the trial court sufficiently canvassed him on February 23rd, 2012, such that he could have knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily waived his right to counsel at that time. Specifically, he asserts that the trial court failed to properly explain, one, the charges that he was facing, and two, the dangers and disadvantages of self-representation. Of relevant importance is that the trial court, Judge McNamara, canvassed the defendant on the alleged date concerning his waiver of counsel. In relevant part, the court engaged in a colloquy with him concerning the pending charges. After completing this, the court found that the defendant knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily waived his right to counsel. Our standard of review, the court's going to review the determination of one's waiver of the right to counsel under the abuse of discretion standard. The right to counsel and the right to self-representation present mutually exclusive alternatives. A criminal defendant has a constitutionally protected interest in each, but the rights cannot be exercised simultaneously. When the right to have competent counsel ceases as the result of a sufficient waiver, the right to self-representation begins. Consequently, by waiving this right to counsel, the defendant is exercising his right to self-representation. A record that affirmatively shows that a defendant was literate, competent, and understanding, and that he was voluntarily exercising his informed free will sufficiently supports a waiver. The nature of this inquiry has been articulated by various federal courts of appeals, Practice Book 44-3 was adopted in order to implement the right of a criminal defendant to act as his own attorney. This provision, however, requires the trial court to first accept a defendant's waiver of counsel by conducting an inquiry which will demonstrate the defendant's decision to waive as knowing and intelligent. In turn, that inquiry triggers the defendant's right to represent himself after concluding that he's waived his right to counsel. However, 44-3 cannot be construed to require anything more than is constitutionally mandated. The multi-factor analysis of 44-3 is designed to assist the court in answering two questions. First, whether a criminal defendant is minimally competent to make the decision to waive counsel. And second, whether that defendant actually made that decision in a knowing, voluntary, and intelligent fashion. The U.S. Supreme Court has held that these questions are separate with the former logically antecedent to the latter. Upon finding that the defendant's competence is uncontested, the court proceeds to whether the trial court abused its discretion. Sometimes you hear the standard of review and you know how the case is going to shake out, right? So here, the appellate court concluded on the basis of the record that the trial court could have reasonably concluded that the defendant was literate, competent, and possessed sufficient understanding of the duties of self-representation and that he was voluntarily waiving his right to counsel and invoking his right to self-representation. Moreover, the appellate court rejected the defendant's claim 
that the trial court did not engage in a comprehensive discussion with him concerning the elements of the pending charges. Instead, the court found that such a discussion wasn't necessary because the defendant understood the charges sufficiently enough to provide a waiver. Now, the Supreme Court has previously held that perfect comprehension of each element of a charge is not necessary to finding a knowing and intelligent waiver. A discussion of the elements may be helpful and could be a factor involved in the determination of the understanding. However, the description is not by itself uh, of the defendant's constitutional rights in this context. Precedent supports this contention because the court has approved a defendant's assertion of the right to proceed pro se in a case in which the record did not disclose that the trial court explained the specific elements of the crimes charged so long as the defendant understood the nature of the crimes. The court cites State versus Collins for that rule. The defendant's charge of assault of a disabled person in the third degree and charge of a disorderly conduct were undoubtedly understood by the defendant as relatively straightforward and in alignment with the statutory names of the offenses. Additionally, the defendant was undoubtedly aware that the facts involved in each of the charges stemmed from the altercation with his brother. Accordingly, after the trial court ascertained that the defendant was literate, recited each of his charged offenses as long as, uh, along with their minimum and maximum penalties, and asked whether he understood the charges, it was therefore reasonable for the court to conclude that the defendant understood the nature of the charges against him. Thus, the Supreme Court cannot find that there was an abuse of discretion in this context. Moreover, the defendant's contention that the waiver of his right to counsel was constitutionally inadequate because it didn't make him aware of the danger and disadvantage of self-representation cannot prevail. Because the court, after hearing that the defendant was unfamiliar with the laws and procedure of a criminal trial, informed him that during these proceedings, the court would be unable to advise him on any issues of law or procedure. The court further explained that despite the lack of knowledge, the defendant still expected to follow all rules and procedures applicable to the lawyers in the courtroom. Notwithstanding this information, the defendant insisted on representing himself, and he held himself out as the one who had the education, experience, and school to do so, along with access to a library. On the basis of this information, the record affirmatively reflects that the defendant was literate, competent, and understood that he was voluntarily exercising his free will to waive counsel and represent himself. Therefore, there was no abuse of trial court discretion here in finding adequate waiver. The defendant relies upon several of this court's and the appellate court's case law in claiming that he should have been warned of the specific dangers of self-representation. However, while those cases demonstrate factual situations where canvases included specific warnings to the danger of self-representation, the fact that the defendant received here a different canvas is not dispositive. Because the defendant does not possess a constitutional right to a specifically formulated canvas, and his rights are not violated so long as the court's canvas was sufficient to establish a knowing and voluntary given waiver, the court cites State versus Acampora, 176 Connecticut Appellate, 227. So the holding here on this claim, the canvas was sufficient. The defendant was aware of the dangers. There was nothing more constitutionally required. Accordingly, the appellate court correctly concluded 
that there was no abuse of discretion at the trial court in determining that the defendant had given a valid waiver in light of the back and forth that took place and the defendant's own statements. Moving on, claim two, the defendant argues next that the appellate court improperly declined to review his claim that he clearly and unequivocally invoked his right to self-representation prior to February 23rd and that the trial court violated his right to counsel by not canvassing him prior to this date. Specifically, he claims that when the trial court failed to canvass him prior to arraignment and engaging in plea negotiations, this violated his right to counsel. He further asserts that the trial court's failure to canvass him regarding his right to counsel during the critical stage of plea negotiations was a structural error and therefore not subject to harmless error analysis. There are some additional facts relevant to this claim as set forth in the the appellate court opinion. On September 14th, 2011, the defendant appeared for his arraignment without a lawyer. Due to the nature of the charges, a discussion was held concerning whether family services was going to be involved in this case, whether a protective order needed to be put in place, and whether the conditions of that order should be because the defendant and the victim lived together. The defendant declined the assistance of family services and it was agreed that the defendant would return to the apartment he shared with his, bro- with his brother. Between September 28th and November 29th of 2011, the defendant requested and received four continuances so that he could retain counsel. At the November 29th, 2011 hearing, a colloquy occurred between the prosecutor, the court, and the defendant. The defendant stated at one point that he was searching for a lawyer and then stated that he wished to represent himself. After this statement, the court questioned him about his ability to retain a public defender. The defendant informed the court that he was unable to do so because he gets too much unemployment. Thereafter, the court explained the maximum sentence for the charges and reiterated the need to get a lawyer. At this point, the defendant argued about the merits of the case and stated that From what he sees of attorneys, he believed that he could do a better job. God bless him. The court then instructed the defendant to discuss the case with the prosecutor before moving forward. After this discussion, the prosecutor indicated to the court that the defendant was unable to have a cogent conversation and was in need of an attorney. The court then granted another continuance. On December 13, 2011, after the defendant's case was called by the state, The prosecutor commented that the defendant had since September to find a lawyer, and when questioned about this matter, the defendant replied that he was saving up money. The case was continued again, so the defendant could acquire the funds for a lawyer. Five additional continuances for the same reason were thereafter granted. On February 23rd, the court, Judge McNamara, was informed by the state of the multiple continuances granted for the defendant to get a lawyer. The court questioned the defendant on whether he had in fact done so, and the defendant said that he lacked the money and also believed that because the altercation occurred between him and his brother, a lawyer was unnecessary. Additionally, he represented then to the court that if he needed to represent himself, he would. The court then asked the prosecutor whether Ed made any offers, to which the prosecutor responded that he made one in December of 2011 and the defendant confirmed that he was rejecting that offer. 
The court then placed the case on the trial list and canvassed with the defendant concerning his waiver and invocation of self-representation. The court then found that the defendant knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily waived his right to counsel. With all that in mind, we go to our standard of review. Most constitutional violations do not require automatic reversal of a conviction and must instead be reviewed to determine whether they were harmless. The harmless error doctrine is essential to preserve the principle that the central purpose of a criminal trial is to determine the factual question of the defendant's innocence or guilt. This doctrine focuses upon the underlying fairness of the trial rather than on the inevitable presence of immaterial error. Therefore, to find a constitutional violation harmless, this court must be convinced by a reasonable doubt that the error did not contribute to the verdict, citing State versus Cushard, 328 Connecticut, 558. However, some violations, such as structural errors, so undermine the integrity of the proceedings that they cannot be reviewed as harmless. These errors are, by their nature, casting so much doubt on the fairness of the trial process that, as a matter of law, they can never be considered harmless. Instead, structural errors, like constitutional violations, require reversal of the defendant's conviction and a new trial. An error is considered structural when it affects the framework within which the trial proceeds, such that the error always results in fundamental unfairness or when the effects of the error are too hard to measure. In contrast, an error is subject to harmless review, and that occurs in a distinct portion of the trial and does not undermine the fairness of the proceeding. This court and the United States Supreme Court has recognized that a lack of counsel at a preliminary hearing is less dangerous than the lack of counsel at the trial itself, citing Adams versus Illinois, 405 U.S., 278. However, the denial of counsel during a pretrial proceeding may rise to the level of structural error if any decisions were made affecting the fundamental fairness of the trial. And this court may review the record to decipher whether or not any harm occurred which ultimately affected the defendant's trial. Additionally, this court has explained that denial of counsel at pretrial proceedings is discreet and discernible from a review of the record because the court can look at the record to determine whether anything transpired that impacted the outcome of the trial. So getting into our analysis of the case here, the defendant's decision to reject the plea offer prior to the beginning of the trial did not affect the framework within which the trial proceeded. The court notes that there is no evidence supporting the contention that any aspect of the trial was impacted by the defendant's self-representation during the initial plea negotiations with the state. Thus, even if the trial court improperly failed to canvass the defendant prior to his plea negotiations with the state, no error occurred which irretrievably eroded the fundamental fairness of the defendant's trial. The defendant claims that if he had properly been canvassed prior to plea negotiations, then he wouldn't have rejected the plea offer and proceeded to trial. However, even if this alleged error is true, it would not have pervaded the trial or affected the deliberations of the jury. Instead, the scope of the error alleged by the defendant occurred during a distinct portion of the proceedings, before trial, and we can easily identify the scope. In support of its conclusion, 
The court notes that their recent decision in Cushard, in that case, there was a failure to adequately canvass the defendant prior to a probable cause hearing. However, the court rejected that error as a structural one. It reasoned that because nothing happened during the four-month period between the failure to adequately canvass and the proper canvas later, given which could have contaminated the criminal proceeding, that there was no structural error. Similarly here, there was a period of approximately five months between the defendant's arraignment and the court's proper canvas. The defendant doesn't contend that anything which may have occurred during this period was used against him later at trial, such as statements made to the prosecutor or irreversible decisions regarding trial strategy. Now, Cushard makes it clear that the deprivation of counsel at pretrial stages is not structural when that deprivation occurs during a distinct portion of the pretrial proceedings is readily identifiable and when no decision was made during the relevant time period that had an effect on the subsequent trial. A review of the record reflects that although the defendant rejected the plea offer one time, the state was open to negotiation even after the defendant was properly canvassed. So accordingly, the court cannot conclude that even if there was a failure to canvass the defendant at the arraignment, such a failure amounted to structural error. Therefore, we need to review it for harmless error. And that standard of review is as follows. If a claim is constitutional in magnitude, the state has the burden of proving that the error was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. In order to conclude that the presumed error is harmless, the court must be persuaded that the error did not contribute to the verdict obtained, citing State v. LeConte, 320 Connecticut, 500. The defendant's main contention is that he was harmed by rejecting the state's plea offer of 45 days in prison because he received a longer sentence at trial. Specifically, he alleges that if he would have been properly canvassed, he would not have made that decision because he would have understood the consequences. However, as explained in Cushard, the extent to which the verdict could be attributed to the defendant's self-representation at trial is not the result of any earlier invalid waiver. If, having been fully warmed of the consequences of conviction, the dangers of self-representation, and the benefits of having a lawyer, the defendant nevertheless made a knowing and voluntary choice to proceed to trial as his own representative. Here, the defendant validly waived his right to counsel, at which time he was advised that a conviction carried a mandatory one-year sentence. Therefore, any harm that flowed from that decision resulted from his own voluntary actions. Accordingly, the court's harmless error analysis in this case must focus on whether the rejection of the plea without benefit of a lawyer or a canvas had any impact on the trial. The defendant points to no aspect of his trial that may have been affected by this decision other than the fact that he was sentenced to a longer term of incarceration than the original agreement presented. Examination of the record supports this conclusion. He was given the plea offer in December of 2011. Thereafter, he returned almost every week to get more continuances. On February 23, 2012, he informed the court that he was not going to accept the state's plea offer. Thereafter, the trial court proceeded to canvass the defendant and determine that his waiver of his right to counsel was knowing, intelligent, and voluntary. Nothing in the record suggests 
that after the defendant waived his right to counsel, that he ever asked the state if he could still accept the deal that was on the table. And while even three years after his waiver, the state still seemed open to the defendant accepting the offer. In fact, the prosecutor represented to the court that it was unable to, to accept the defendant's request for a nolly, but did not intimate that it was not willing to consider other plea agreements. The record demonstrates that even after receiving a proper canvas and validly waiving his right to counsel, he was not willing to accept a plea deal with the state. Additionally, neither the state nor the court stated that the offer was completely unavailable after the defendant initially rejected it. It follows that because the defendant had an opportunity to continue plea negotiations with the state and because he never requested to accept the initial offer, his rejection of that initial offer without the benefit of counsel or proper canvas did not contribute to the verdict obtained. Therefore, even assuming that the defendant's right to counsel was violated, the record is devoid of any indication that he was harmed by this violation. Accordingly, the trial court's failure to canvass the defendant at the plea bargain stage was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. In sum, as we conclude, this defendant failed to show the lack of a proper canvas prior to any pretrial proceedings was structural error and moreover, that even if an error had occurred, that it irretrievably harmed the outcome of his trial or his constitutional right to counsel. So what is the lesson here? I think the lesson is if a potential client comes into your office and when you quote this person a fee and the person says, well, what do I need to pay you for? I can just go ahead and do it myself. Tell them the story of Joseph A. It's a good one. Hopefully it'll convince them to open up the checkbook. That'll do it this week for the podcast. Dan Lage here again, as I am every week, giving the latest in habeas and criminal law decisions from the appellate and Supreme Court here in the state of Connecticut. I'll see you next time. We'll have some more cases on the docket next week. Hopefully we'll get some wins. Remember the end of 2020? There were so many great decisions coming out. Uh, It's been a string of losses here recently on the podcast. So hoping for good days ahead and warmer weather. I'll see y'all next week. Next up, injury law cases. If you know someone who has been injured, Connecticut trial firm can help. Our lawyers handle car accidents, malpractice, dog bite, and premises liability cases across the state of Connecticut. Our lawyers have achieved multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements. Our trial team has the experience and the resources to make a difference. Connecticut trial firm attorneys are always available to consult with fellow attorneys on injury law issues at any time. Put the power of over 124 five-star reviews to work for your personal injury referrals by trusting the team at Connecticut trial firm. Visit cttrialfirm.com for more information or call us 24-7 at 860-471-8333. Hi, it's Connecticut personal injury attorney Ryan McKean here. And this week I'm going to discuss the decision of Pascola Milton versus Millard. And this case was argued on November 17th, 2020, and officially released on March 9th, 2021. And this appeal uh, derives from an arbitration decision. And one of the things about Connecticut law is that arbitrations are 
inherently difficult to overturn pursuant to both statute and case law. So this case is about one's right to de novo review after a decision is rendered in arbitration and whether the statute of limitations applies to a joint complaint. Here are the facts of this case. On November 29, 2014, Pascola Milton was injured in a two-car motor vehicle accident involving the defendant Millard. On July 6, 2017, she commenced this action asserting negligence against Millard and a claim for underinsured motorist benefits against Liberty Mutual. On October 17, 2017, Pascola Milton's husband filed a joint motion to join this action as a party plaintiff alleging loss of consortium, bystander emotional distress, and negligent infliction of emotional distress against Millard. He argued claims for loss of consortium and bystander emotional distress against Liberty in addition to claims for intentional infliction of emotional distress, underinsured motorist benefits, violations of Connecticut unfair trade practices, and violation of Connecticut Unfair Insurance Practices Act. That motion was granted. On March 16, 2018, Pascola Milton withdrew her actions as to, Mithla, as to Millard after he accepted her offer of compromise. On August 20, 2018, she entered into a voluntary arbitration agreement with Liberty Mutual. On January 30, 2019, the arbitrator issued a decision awarding Pascola Milton $72,635 and she withdrew her complaint against Liberty Mutual. On February 11, 2019, Pascola Milton filed a demand for a trial de novo appealing from the arbitrator's decision. The trial court, Judge D'Andrea, denied her demand, finding no statutory right to a trial de novo on an unrestricted voluntary submission to an arbitration. Her motion to re-argue and reconsider was subsequently denied. On January 9, 2019, Millard moved for summary judgment on Milton's claims on the grounds that those claims were barred by the two-year statute of limitations. The court granted the motion on all counts against Millard. On June 3, 2019, Pascola Milton and Milton filed this joint appeal challenging Pascola Milton's demand for trial de nomo and judgment on Millard and Milton's complaint. On Claim 1, the trial de novo following arbitration, Pascola Milton argued that the trial court erred in denying her demand for a trial de novo following the arbitrator's decision on her claims against Liberty Mutual, arguing that she had an absolute right to a trial de novo. The following things are things that you should know about this claim. Pascola Milton and Liberty executed a voluntary submission arbitration agreement the opening paragraph of this agreement stated that the award shall be final, binding, and not subject to review or appeal except provided by statute. In the court's denial of her demand for trial de novo, the court reasoned that the agreement was not subject to compulsory arbitration, but rather voluntary, and demand can only be made if 
the arbitration was compulsory pursuant to Connecticut General Statutes 52-549U. Now, the standard of review for arbitration awards is generally determined by whether the arbitration was compulsory or voluntary. And where the arbitration was voluntary, the scope of judicial review is limited by the terms of the party's agreement and the provisions of General Statutes 52-418. Moreover, when determining whether an arbitrator has exceeded their authority or improperly executed the same, the courts need only examine the submission and the award to determine whether the award conforms to the submission. Under an unrestricted submission, the arbitrator's decision is considered final and binding. Thus, courts will not review the award for errors of law or fact. Such a limited scope of judicial review is warranted given that the parties voluntarily bargain for the decision of the arbitrator, and as such, the parties are presumed to have assumed the risks and waived objections to the decision. It follows that a party cannot object to an award that accomplished precisely what the arbitrator was authorized to do merely because the party dislikes the result. The trial court determined that the submission of the case was voluntary and unrestricted. Pescola Milton has not challenged that the determination, nor could she, because both parties voluntarily contracted to submit their issues to arbitration. The authority that Pescola Milton relies upon pertains only to a compulsory arbitration, not voluntary. Accordingly, Pescola's motion, voluntary submission to arbitration grants no rights whatsoever to de novo review, and her demand is unveiling. Now, on claim two, the summary judgment, Milton claims that the court erred in rendering summary judgment in favor of Millard on the grounds that the two-year statute of limitations outlined in Connecticut General Statutes 52-584. He contends that his claims are subject to the three-year statute of repose contained in the same statute. Now, in deciding a motion for summary judgment, the trial court must view the evidence in a light most favorable to the non-moving party, and the test is whether the party would be entitled to directed verdict on the same facts. This court's review of a trial court's decision to grant summary judgment is plenary. Summary judgment may be granted where the claim is barred by the statute of limitations. The question of whether any statute of limitations applies to a given action is a question of law over which a court has plenary review. 52-584 provides the requisite statute of limitations in this case. The court has explained the statute imposes two requirements on plaintiffs. One, the action must be brought within two years from the date the injury was first sustained or discovered or in the exercise of reasonable care could ha should have been discovered. And two, in no event shall the plaintiff be bring an action more than three years from the date of the omission complained of. The three-year limitation is a statute of repose as it specifies the time beyond which the action is barred. Moreover, this court has held that an injury occurs when a party suffers some form of actionable harm that defendant's conduct caused such injury. The statute begins to run when the plaintiff discovers some form of actionable harm 
The focus is on the plaintiff's knowledge of the facts rather than discovery of applicable legal theories. Here, the facts pertaining to the statute of limitations is undisputed. The accident causing Pascola Milton's injuries and from which Milton's alleged injuries are derived occurred on November 29, 2014. Milton did not seek to join Pascola Milton's action until October of 2017. Milton argues that his claims are not subject to the two-year statute of limitation, but rather governed by the three-year statute of repose. He asserts that he asserted that in the exercise of reasonable care, he did not discover and was unable to determine until two years after the underlying bodily injury claim by his wife. However, this assertion is belayed by his allegation that he arrived at the scene of the accident shortly after it occurred, where he allegedly suffered shock in viewing his wife's condition and the condition of his of her vehicle. Milton's claims are derived from his wife's claims against Millard for his negligent and reckless and or reckless conduct which caused the accident and her bodily injuries. Therefore, it cannot be reasonably disputed that Milton's injuries were sustained on the date of the accident. It follows that his complaint against Millard is blarred by the statute of limitations and summary judgment was properly rendered. So, in conclusion, one who voluntarily submits to an arbitration may not be able to invoke the right of trial de novo of the when the decision is made, and, and when one files a joint complaint, they're going to be subject to the statute of limitations for their injuries, which occurred in the same time frame as the original complaint. And I think that there are, you know, are really two lessons here for personal injury lawyers, which are one, you know, to bring the loss of consortium claim at the same time that you're filing the underlying action. So it is not barred that the loss of consortium claim statute of limitations is going to be practically two years and that when you are submitting to an arbitration it's really important that you and your clients understand that the arbitration award is going to be final i mean really it is difficult to appeal any sort of uh, agreed upon arbitration award as it and sort of as it should be the parties have agreed uh, to the final decision and they are foregoing other legal rights that they have in litigation nobody is forcing them to do it so as you're thinking about arbitration for your clients you know Pascola Milton versus Millard at all is going to be one of the cases that you're going to want to check out it is uh, AC 43011 next up Family Law Cases. If you know someone who needs the advice of a lawyer who focuses exclusively on divorce and other family matters, Rich Rockland is your guy. Rich handles cases all across the state of Connecticut, including the state appellate court, and welcomes your referrals. Rich will personally handle the case and will be attentive to all your clients' needs. Family litigation is stressful, and you don't need your referral stress being taken out on you. Rich's goal is to counsel his clients through a family law case with an eye towards resolving the issue in a manner that protects their interests while minimizing their stress and yours. If you would like to discuss a referral of a family law matter, please contact us at 860-357-9158. We have virtual consults available and in-person consults in West Hartford Center and welcome the call from fellow attorneys.
Hello everyone, it's Rich Rockland here. Um, reviewing the case of Buffard v. Lewis, um, issued by the Appellate Court, published on March 9th, 2021. It was argued back in December of 2020. Judge uh, Suarez issued the opinion. And the case here interprets whether uh, certain orders for child support and alimony are subject to an automatic appellate stay. In this instance, the uh, parties were uh, divorced July 31 of 2017 by way of an agreement, and the agreement was incorporated into the judgment, um, and the provisions that the defendant were to make monthly payments of $4,729 as alimony for 17 years, I'm sorry, for seven years, and $1,398 a month as child support until the party's child attains the age of 21. The agreement further provided that during the seven-year term for alimony, the defendant would also make annual payments of unallocated alimony and child support in the sum equal to 30% of any gross income from his employment that exceeded $175,000. On March 8, 2019, the defendant filed a post-judgment motion for modification of his monthly alimony and child support due to a substantial decrease in his monthly income. On June 5, 2019, the plaintiff filed a motion for contempt alleging that the defendant had not remained current on his payments since April of 2019 and he owed an amount for unallocated alimony and child support based on his 2018 gross income. On March 4, 2020, the trial court denied the defendant's motion and granted the plaintiff's motion for contempt, finding that the defendant owed arrearages of $8,684 in child support and $37,832 in alimony, plus $82,397 in unallocated alimony and child support based upon his 2018 gross income. Additionally, the court found that the defendant found the defendant in contempt and awarded the plaintiff $13,500.50 in attorney's fees in connection with prosecuting the motion. And then the court ordered that the defendant pay the child support arrearage, unallocated alimony and child support within 30 days. He was to pay the alimony arrearage within 60 days, um, and they were, he was ordered to pay it as a lump sum. The defendant filed a motion to re-argue the court's order, which was denied, and this appeal followed. The plaintiff then filed an additional motion for contempt with the trial court on April 13, 2020 on the basis of the defendant's failure to remain current with his monthly alimony and child support payments since November of 2019. Before the scheduled hearing on this motion, the plaintiff filed a motion in limine to preclude the defendant from calling his accountant as a witness. The defendant filed an objection to this motion in limine, arguing that there was an automatic appellate stay of the trial court's March 4, 2020 orders. The plaintiff filed an amended motion for contempt, arguing that the trial court's orders were not stayed by this appeal. On October 30th, 2020, the court issued the following order, which is the subject of this motion for review. The court found that pursuant to practice book 61-11C in relevant case law, the defendant's obligation to pay is stayed pending appeal. And two, the plaintiff filed a motion for review asking this court to reverse the trial court's order. The plaintiff argues that the March 4th, 2020 orders are not subject to an automatic appellate stay and that orders of civil contempt and penalties connected therewith are not subject to an automatic appellate stay. A review of the trial court's October 30th order requires this court to interpret practice book 6111, specifically sections A and C. This interpretation is a question of law for which this court, which the appellate court has plenary review. Practice book 6111, I'm sorry, 6111 governs days of execution. The statute requires that except where otherwise provided in the statute, proceedings to enforce or carry out a judgment order will be automatically stayed until the expiration of an appeal or until a final determination of an appeal. However, family matters and orders of child support are specifically exempt from this provision under subsection C. Practice 161.11c, however, makes it clear that any party may move to terminate or impose a stay before or after judgment based on the existence or expectation of an appeal. 
The judge hearing such motion may terminate or impose a stay of any order pending appeal as appropriate after considering the needs and interests of the parties, their children, and any other persons affected by such order, the potential prejudice that may be caused to the parties, their children, and other persons affected if a stay is entered, not entered, or is terminated, if the appeal is from a judgment of dissolution, the need to preserve pending appeal, the mosaic of orders established in the judgment, four, the need to preserve the rights of the party taking the appeal to obtain effective relief if the appeal is successful, and any other factors affecting the equities of the parties. Nevertheless, here the defendant did not move for a stay pursuant to this provision. Rather, he argues that the lump sum payments are stay pending appeal and support thereof cites the case of Low v. Low from 2000. Um, the court notes that the factual and procedural history in Low is different than the present case. In Low, the plaintiff was challenging new lump sum alimony ordered in the original dissolution. The appellate court reversed the trial court's granting of the plaintiff's motion for a stay, which claimed that the alimony order was exempt from the automatic stay. Finding that the vacation of the order indicated the court's determination that the alimony order was lump sum in nature and subject to the automatic stay. Conversely, in the present case, the motion for contempt was for failure to pay periodic alimony and child support, which was simply calculated based upon the past due payments, which were then ordered to be paid in a lump sum. Unlike in Lowe, the lump sum order was not a new order. Accordingly, the March 4, 2020 orders are not automatically stayed. Additionally, the plaintiff's second assertion is that there is no automatic stay of the March 4, 2020 orders requiring the defendant to make past due payments in addition to attorney's fees because the order was issued in connection with a judgment finding the defendant in contempt. Trial courts have the authority to issue post-judgment orders effectuating its judgment because it allows the court to protect the integrity of its original ruling. Moreover, a court's contempt power does not automatically stay in appeal because, if so, the conditional and coercive nature of civil contempt would be rendered virtually meaningless. Accordingly, the appellate court found that in light of the court's orders issued in conjunction with the judgment finding the defendant in contempt, such orders cannot automatically stay. In conclusion, the appellate court ordered the relief the plaintiff requested and granted it, uh, and, the, um, and the court's October 30th, 2020 order was vacated because the March 4th, 2020 orders were not subject to an automatic appellate stay by virtue of practice book 61-11c. The matter was then remanded to the trial court for further proceedings in accordance with the opinion. Thanks for listening to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get alerted every time a new episode is released. And to give us a five-star rating, you can also watch this podcast on our YouTube channel each week if you prefer to watch in the comfort of your office or stream it on ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com. The Connecticut Case Law Podcast is sponsored by Ruane Attorneys at Law, the Connecticut Trial Firm, and Rich Rockland Law. Attorney Jay Ruane, Connecticut Jurist Number 415988, is responsible for the content of this advertisement. See you next week.